This episode is brought to you by Terminix. There's one thing we can all agree on. Dealing with pests is a pain. But luckily, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. So if your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Eureka, California, 1938. A young teen snaps awake, as if ripped from a dream. He's sweating, his hands are covered in a sticky syrup, and his bedroom reeks of iron. As he comes to his senses, he notices splatters of red covering his wall. There are scratch marks down the locked bedroom door. The boy's eyes slowly travel towards the floor, and his heart stops. Between his feet sits a decapitated head. The last thing he could remember was smoking marijuana. This story was pulled from Harry Anslinger's famous Gore Files, the collection of stories of marijuana-induced violence that Anslinger used to ban marijuana. As the story goes, a young teen in Eureka was smoking a marijuana cigarette with a friend. Then he went berserk. According to the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, the teen was driven to madness by marijuana. He grabbed an axe and proceeded to decapitate his friend, Another axe murderer made crazy by weed, just like Victor Lasada, the Florida man who murdered his entire family. We detailed his crimes last week. But there's a problem with this story. There is zero evidence that the murder ever happened. Anslinger and members of the Bureau of Narcotics used this story in 1933, 1934, 1936, and 1937. It was also printed in various newspapers across the country between 1936 and 1938, all described as having happened recently. A seemingly recycled story to scare the public into supporting marijuana prohibition. Conspiracy? Maybe. Coincidence? Maybe. Complicated? Absolutely. If last episode taught us anything, it was that Harry Anslinger was fully invested in the prohibition of marijuana. The question is, was the man who declared a war on drugs really the true blue son of temperance that he claimed to be? Or was he a power-grabbing bureaucrat aimed at turning the Federal Bureau of Narcotics into his own personal war machine? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, the podcast where we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. This is our second and final episode on the conspiracy theories surrounding reefer madness, the marijuana anxiety that swept the country in the 1930s. Last episode, we covered the official story of how marijuana came to be an illegal substance. This week, we talk about three conspiracy theories. Conspiracy number one. Anslinger's rumored desperate power grab. Theory number two, 
xenophobia as a possible vehicle for prohibition, and theory number three, the corporate powers who could have wanted hemp plant outlawed to eliminate business competition. Last week, we discussed the rise of bureaucrat Harry J. Anslinger, commissioner of a newly created branch of government, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Designated in 1930, the FBN was formed at the tail end of Prohibition and was designed to tackle the rampant opioid addiction in the United States. But Anslinger, a temperance hardliner, didn't stop at heroin and morphine. He also waged war against cannabis, one of the most widely used pharmaceutical drugs until the mid-1930s. Hemp plant and cannabis became a public enemy overnight. As we covered last week, until the early 1930s and very briefly during World War II, hemp and its products were widely used and extremely popular with the American public. There's this old story about President George H.W. Bush. He was serving during World War II, during a brief time when hemp plant was mass-produced to aid in the war effort. As the story goes, he bailed out of his burning airplane as it cruised over the Pacific. The parts of his aircraft engine were lubricated with hemp seed oil. His life-saving parachute webbing was made of hemp. The rigging and rope on his rescue ship were hemp. And the fire hoses on the ship were woven from cannabis hemp. This story itself has been debunked, but it still gets the point across. Hemp plant was once everywhere. But when Harry J. Anslinger was appointed head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, or FBN, in 1930, things quickly changed. Anslinger grew up in a small town where opioid addiction was common. Witnessing the horrors of addiction was the driving force behind his crusade against opiates and marijuana. And going after opioids was extremely important. But as you'll recall from last episode, there were no reported cases of cannabis addiction in the 1930s and no medical professionals calling for its prohibition. Which brings us to conspiracy theory number one. Anslinger criminalized marijuana for power and funding for the FBN. In fact, Johann Hari states in his book, Chasing Screams, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, that Anslinger consulted 30 doctors about the dangers of marijuana, and 29 of those doctors said they found no qualm with cannabis. According to Hari, Anslinger bucked the opinions of all 29 doctors in favor of the one who took issue with marijuana. That doesn't seem to be a medically acceptable way of interpreting research. It wouldn't appear to be. Whether you are for or against the criminalization of marijuana, you have to admit that Anslinger crossed a line. But the question is, why? He was a top-ranking government official who had already successfully aided in the ban on opioids and alcohol. In Chasing Screams, Johann Hari addresses Anslinger's possible motive for fudging the numbers on numerous reports. In 1930, Anslinger was the newly appointed commissioner of a newly created branch of the federal government. Hari asserts that a huge reason for choosing to attack cannabis was for funding and power. In fact, at the very beginning of his career at the FBN in 1930, Anslinger went on record saying that cannabis was, quote, no big deal. But later that year, he made a full about-face and began his cannabis inquest. It stands to reason that someone who came from almost nothing and made it to one of the top positions in the United States government would want to hold on to that power. And he had reason to fear that power would slip away. The FBN was formed from condensing two agencies— the Federal Narcotics Control Board, and the Narcotic Division in June of 1930. By the time Anslinger was appointed head of the FBN in September, only a small minority of drug offenders were using illegal narcotics like heroin and cocaine. If the department didn't prove itself to be imperative to national health, it could be absorbed again. Hari suggests that from its inception, the FBN was threatened by obsolescence. Anslinger needed a widely used drug to ensure a robust future for the Bureau, and no drug was more ubiquitous than cannabis. 
By unearthing a new drug threat and showing how important his department was, Anslinger was protecting the Bureau from further consolidation and securing his role as head of that Bureau if cannabis, one of the most popular drugs in the United States, were suddenly found to be harmful, the FBN would become an invaluable part of the U.S. government and would conceivably receive massive funding and attention. All in all, it's a smart move for a man worried about keeping his job. Agreed. But Anslinger would need to prove that marijuana was a harmful substance if he wanted it to be banned by the U.S. government. He needed to produce a large amount of evidence that supported his claims. If marijuana were truly harmless, one would assume Anslinger would have been unable to produce enough evidence to support his claim. That's an excellent point, and one which critics are quick to address. We said that at the beginning of his marijuana crusade in 1930, Anslinger consulted 30 doctors on the harmful nature of marijuana, and only one took arms against the drug. Last episode, we quoted a self-proclaimed marijuana expert, named Dr. James C. Munch, the only doctor who supported Anslinger's claims, and who once stated in a court of law that after just a few puffs of a marijuana cigarette, he believed he was a bat who could fly around the room. Now, who's to discredit the doctor on that? Accounts of hallucinations, or as they're called colloquially, bad trips, aren't uncommon. But conspiracy theorists believe that Munch was purposely misleading the court in order to aid Anslinger in his crusade against weed. That he was well aware that no violent crimes had been connected to marijuana and was feeding Anslinger numbers and conclusions that Anslinger wanted to hear. In fact, Anslinger believed Munch's research so wholeheartedly that he once testified to Congress, quote, some people will fly into a delirious rage, and they are temporarily irresponsible and may commit violent crimes. Wait, so the assertion is that Dr. Munch was so loyal to Anslinger's cause that he perjured himself in a court of law repeatedly and coached Anslinger to do the same? Perjury is a serious crime. I don't see what Munch is getting out of it. I don't either. There is no proof of any kind of payoff to Munch, and it's hard to believe he would put himself in the line of fire out of the goodness of his heart. But one detail published in The Telegraph sticks out. Munch's testimony on violence incited by marijuana led to an offender receiving the death sentence. And after that trial, Anslinger asked Dr. Munch to stop testifying. That is an unsettling detail, and one that theorists use to incriminate Anslinger. But if he stopped Munch for moral reasons, his next move doesn't make complete sense. In the 1940s, shortly after weed had been criminalized by the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937, Anslinger launched an attack on judges. As illegal marijuana use continued in the United States, Anslinger claimed that the drug problem was the product of lenient sentences imposed on drug offenders. According to the Encyclopedia of Drugs, Alcohol, and Addictive Behavior, Anslinger was critical of the judicial system and bullied them into drafting and passing the Boggs Act, which introduced mandatory minimums for drug convictions. The act was signed into law by President Truman on November 2, 1951. The Boggs Act was notoriously severe. It could send drug users to jail for up to 10 years, and those caught selling heroin to a minor could be sentenced to death. Some argue that including the death penalty in the Boggs Act is proof that Anslinger believed in his crusade wholeheartedly and wanted criminals to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But others argue that he wanted to be able to control the sentences, feeling guilty about the incident with Munch. It's easy to see both sides of that argument. Additionally, critics of Anslinger say that every time he feared his department would lose prominence, he started looking for a new drug-enabling villain to attack. We can't forget that Anslinger's childhood was fraught with the horrors of addiction. Provided those stories are true, and we have no reason to doubt them, Anslinger had a deeply personal motivation to protect the public from narcotics, marijuana included. And it seems like a stretch to say that he dedicated the rest of his life to cannabis prohibition just to keep his seat of power. 
We know that Anslinger would bend the truth to further his point of view, like the way he recycled the story of the teenage murder that we detailed at the top of the episode. But today's conspiracy theories are about dissecting the motive behind his relentless pursuit. Whether Anslinger was ruthless in his conquest of weed out of moral piety or personal gain. You know what they say, the ends justify the means. But they also say that absolute power corrupts absolutely. We've discussed marijuana research, which suggests that it is nowhere near as harmful as opioids or heroin, and that no violent crimes or overdoses have ever been attributed to marijuana. Now, obviously, our knowledge of marijuana today is more in-depth than the knowledge available in the 1930s, so it may seem unfair to impose our understanding of cannabis on Anslinger and his cohorts. But remember, 29 medical professionals told Anslinger that his fears about marijuana were unfounded. And asking Munch to stop testifying after a man was given the death penalty does not help Anslinger's cause. I'm giving this conspiracy theory a 7 out of 10. It's fairly strong. There is a lot to support this conspiracy theory that Anslinger was using marijuana as a power grab, but there isn't a lot of definitive proof. The motivations of Anslinger and Munch are still unknown and have to be taken at face value. Plus, it doesn't make sense that Munch would perjure himself without some kind of reward. He could have truly believed what he was saying. If he was paid off or had some other reason for going along with this supposed ruse, I would love to know. But I agree for now. We have to take his testimony at face value and accept that both men believed they were protecting the public. But which members of the public was Anslinger truly protecting? Some conspiracy theorists believe that for Anslinger, there was a far greater menace going bump in the night. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least, not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of bug it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. And with over 95 years of experience, it's no wonder they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now our story continues. The next conspiracy theory we'll be investigating would, if true, expose a much more sinister side of the war on weed. Theory number two. Harry J. Anslinger knowingly employed xenophobia and racial anxiety as a tool to foster fear about marijuana and expedite its prohibition. Before we dive into the mechanics of this theory, we should be frank about Harry J. Anslinger. During his time as head of the FBN, he has made numerous statements that are objectively racist, both by today's standards and the 1930s. We'll quote a few of them now and throughout this section, but note that we've changed any slurs or outdated language. Not to soften the impact of these statements, but so as not to offend any listeners. We at Parcast do not condone any of these statements. Anslinger's most famous quote is as follows, quote, Reefer makes people of color think they're as good as white men, unquote. He was also quoted saying, Quote, there are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are African-American, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. 
Their satanic music, jazz and swing, result from marijuana use. This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with people of color, entertainers, and any other, unquote. It's impossible to deny the racism and xenophobic sentiments in those statements. We should briefly pivot to address another sentiment brought up by Anslinger's quote, the threat of marijuana leading to the ruin of white women. Well, this is actually an old tactic. It was used much earlier in the 20th century to outlaw opium dens in San Francisco. In Disrobed, an inside look at the life and work of a federal trial judge, writer Frederick Block explains that the media propagated the idea that Chinese opioid dens were luring in white women, exposing them to addiction and leading them to sexual misconduct with Chinese men. This sentiment is problematic for two reasons. Not only does this paint black men as something less than and dangerous, it also suggests that women are incapable of making autonomous decisions. At the turn of the 19th century, when this tactic was employed in the crusade against opium dens, women were unable to vote, and only 18% of women held jobs. They had little independence available to them, and men were taught that women were unable to protect themselves. It was a radically different world in which this kind of tactic would work well. The second reason this claim is a problem is that it was, for the most part, untrue. White, middle, and upper-class women did visit opium dens, as did white men. In fact, News Dog Media owns a collection of photographs depicting white opioid users in opium dens in San Francisco at the turn of the century. But there is no evidence supporting the claim that the purpose of opium dens was to lure in white women and engage in illicit behavior. It seems to be a completely fabricated claim, perpetuated by rumor. Nevertheless, this tactic was successful. In 1909, the city of San Francisco banned all opium dens and sent the opium trade underground. Many of Anslinger's ardent supporters would conceivably remember these opium dens being painted as threats to white women. So when Anslinger began to use the same language about marijuana, it could have triggered something in their memories about the opium dens of two decades past. The question is whether Anslinger knew this and used it purposefully as a scare tactic, or whether he truly believed that marijuana threatened white women and believed that statement to be fact. Were his xenophobic and racist tactics purposeful and calculated, or a reflection of his personal dogma and a sign of the times in which he lived? Perhaps we can draw some insight from a tactic Anslinger often used when citing the need for marijuana prohibition. He would read or brandish letters from U.S. citizens that championed the temperance movement. By temperance, we mean both alcohol and narcotics in this case. Anslinger would often use these letters to address the growing concern about Mexican marijuana smokers, according to a paper published by Harvard University in 1999. But what's interesting about the letters cited is that none of them mention Mexicans specifically. Sure, the general population had concerns about marijuana use, but anxiety over an impending threat from Mexican marijuana smokers specifically seems to have been highly fabricated by Anslinger. So who were these supposed Mexican marijuana smokers? And why were they of concern now? For the 20 years prior to Anslinger's campaign, Mexican immigration had been on the rise in the United States, largely due to the Mexican Revolution of 1910. Between 1910 and 1920, the people of Mexico fought to overthrow a dictator and establish democracy in Mexico. The byproduct of this horrific, long, and bloody uprising was thousands of Mexican refugees flooding into the United States. The refugees often spoke little English and had a hard time assimilating into American culture. In fleeing a war-torn country, they had little time to prepare themselves for American culture shock. They were forced to take low-paying jobs and live in overcrowded housing. One way to cope with the hardships of daily life was smoking marijuana recreationally, as they had in Mexico. Which is why advocators for this theory make the argument that banning marijuana was never about marijuana. It was a vehicle to attack communities Anslinger saw as threatening. 
Mexican immigrants brought the idea of recreational cannabis to the United States. Until this time, it had been used solely as medicine and called cannabis. That's an important distinction to make. As his battle with narcotics ramped up in the 30s, Anslinger switched from calling weed cannabis to calling it by its Mexican name, marijuana. Some would argue that his intent was to get Americans subconsciously associating marijuana with Mexican immigrants. He even corralled media mogul William Hearst into printing the word marijuana in all his newspapers. And that wasn't the only group he targeted with his anti-marijuana campaign. After its introduction to the U.S., recreational weed became especially popular in the jazz community, and Anslinger used that as a way to smear jazz musicians. Anslinger's bureau claimed that marijuana drastically slowed the perception of time, which is why jazz music sounded so different from any other style. That jazz musicians were literally living at a different rhythm, removed from reality, because of weed. He claimed that jazz music sounded, quote, like the jungles in the dead of night, and that jazz musicians led lives that, quote, reek of filth. The majority of the jazz musicians in the 1930s were black, and given his previous comments on race, it starts to paint a nasty picture. He feared that jazz musicians and their use of narcotics would corrupt white Americans. There are numerous stories of black musicians being targeted for marijuana use and prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law, while white celebrities were shown leniency and discretion. One of the most harrowing examples of this is detailed in Johan Hari's Chasing the Scream, the first and last days of the war on drugs. It follows the persecution of jazz music and famed singer Billie Holiday. Marijuana or no, Anslinger seemed to have a particular hatred of jazz. Some would argue that his campaign against marijuana wasn't actually about the drug, but about targeting music he hated and a community he feared. One night in New York City, 1939, Billie Holiday debuted a new song entitled Strange Fruit, which grieves the atrocities of lynching in the American South. The next day, she received her first threat from the FBN, essentially warning her to never sing that song again or be investigated for drug use. So allegedly, Anslinger was using his power as commissioner to silence her, even though singing that song had nothing to do with the use of illegal narcotics. Anslinger seemed to be making an example of Billie Holiday. Holiday fought white supremacy and was unapologetically black. If you're someone who advocated for white supremacy, Billie Holiday would be an imposing force to reckon with. After Anslinger learned that Holiday had continued to sing Strange Fruit, Johan Hari explains that Anslinger hatched a master plan to bring down the famed singer. Anslinger had heard rumors that Holiday had been using narcotics recreationally and used that information to attack her freedom and her career. He allegedly hired an undercover FBN agent, a black man named Jimmy Fletcher. Agent Fletcher was assigned to track Holiday's every move. For two years, Fletcher stalked Billie Holiday, learning her routine, her nightly whereabouts, her connections, slowly gaining her trust. Over the course of these two years, he was able to confirm that she used not only marijuana, but cocaine and heroin routinely. She struggled with addiction. According to Hari, Jimmy Fletcher even admitted to friends that he'd fallen in love with Holiday, although his love went unrequited. Nevertheless, it makes what he did next painfully heartbreaking. After gaining her trust, he showed up at her house pretending to have a telegram. When she opened the door to greet her friend, she was surprised to find a policewoman ready to conduct a body search. In a moment of bombastic brilliance, Billie Holiday refused the search and instead offered to strip. She took off all her clothes in front of the officers and as a final act of defiance, relieved herself on the floor. Jimmy took Billy aside and promised to speak with Anslinger about her personally in an attempt to save her job and reputation. Luckily for Billy, they had little evidence to go on and she was eventually released on a warning. Billy must have understood Jimmy's position as the two were later seen in a bar together, catching up like old friends. They even danced together. 
the jazz singer and the FBN agent who raided her. But that would not be enough to save her. Anslinger got in touch with Louis McKay, Billie Holiday's abusive former husband and pimp. Holiday had been a sex worker for McKay before her singing career took off in the early 40s. However, leaving sex work behind made Billie a few enemies. Louis McKay was furious that Holiday had grown the courage to cut him off and pursue a jazz career. He agreed to help Anslinger put away Billie Holiday for good. In 1947, McKay took a train to D.C. to meet with Anslinger and gave him a detailed account of Holiday's use of narcotics, her struggle with addiction, and any other charge he could trump up. With his testimony on record, they had enough to bust her. This time, she went to trial. She begged the judge to be sent to a hospital to kick her drug habit, but instead, she was sent to prison, where she spent a year in hard labor until her release in 1948. But Anslinger was not done with Holiday yet. Neither was Colonel George White, an agent under Harry Anslinger's employ, who spearheaded the investigation against Billie Holiday. White is, by all accounts, a very problematic figure. He was a tall, robust man with a history of violence. Hari also discusses White in Chasing the Screams. He recounts a story of White strangling a Japanese man to death, telling authorities he believed the man to be a spy. But Hari writes that White's friends later divulged that, in private, White said he had no proof that the man he had strangled was a spy, bragging, quote, I have a lot of friends who are murderers. White was allegedly Anslinger's favorite agent. He was a journalist in San Francisco until he applied to join the FBN in the mid-1930s. Hari claims that when White took the personality test to join the Bureau, the results found that White was a sadist, although we cannot find research to fully validate that claim. Nevertheless, White quickly rose through Anslinger's ranks, soon becoming his right-hand man. He was lauded with being the first white man to ever infiltrate a Chinese drug gang and learn to speak Mandarin so he could chant the drug gang's oaths along with them. He also became known for swimming in the filthy New York Hudson River. Not offensive behavior, but still very odd. He was an intense person who pushed himself to extremes. White was in charge of the holiday investigation and he seemed to acquire a specific hatred for her as the investigation developed between 1939 and 1947. He was once overheard complaining about Holiday, saying, quote, she flaunted her way of living with her fancy coats and fancy automobiles and her jewelry and her gowns. She was the big lady wherever she went. Thanks to White and Anslinger, that lifestyle came to an abrupt end. When Holiday was released from prison in 1948, she was stripped of her cabaret license. She was prohibited from singing anywhere that served alcohol on the grounds that listening to her might be morally harmful to the public. Since every jazz club in the U.S. served alcohol, Billie Holiday was essentially out of a job. She was reduced to holding private performances, scraping cash together for rent. On one such occasion at the Mark Twain Hotel in San Francisco, White and the police came for Billy without a search warrant. Billy insisted to the police that she had been clean for over a year. Nevertheless, the police and George White claimed they had found an opium stash in her waste paper basket and the shooting kit in her bedroom. They charged her with possession. However, there are two odd details about this account. First, a waste paper basket is an odd place to keep a stash for fear it would be thrown away. Second, the shooting kit was never entered into evidence. When pressed about it, White said that he forgot. A journalist at the time noted that White, quote, appeared a little defensive. That night, White attended Billy's show at the Cafe Society uptown. He even requested a few of his favorite songs. Holiday obliged, believing in the power of her music to persuade. White was later quoted as telling her manager, quote, I did not think much of Ms. Holiday's performance, unquote. Billie Holiday maintained that the opioids had been planted in her room by White, and she even went so far as to voluntarily check herself into a clinic to be monitored. She reasoned that when she experienced no symptoms of withdrawal, it would be proof that she was clean. 
She checked herself into a clinic and, as she predicted, suffered no withdrawal over the course of her stay. She insisted she was being set up. Holiday was prosecuted anyway. Luckily for Holiday, a jury of her peers looked over the evidence against her and ultimately found her innocent. The relief she felt was overwhelming. Leading up to the trial, she had been racked with anxiety over a possible conviction. She was once quoted as saying she would rather die than go back to jail. But the damage that Anslinger caused was already done. In the years that followed the trials of Billie Holiday, many other singers grew afraid of being harassed by the authorities. Remember, the thing that seemed to prompt the investigation into Holiday was not her narcotics use. It was her singing the song, Strange Fruit. Others were afraid to stand by her or pick up where she left off. Billy was left in isolation. No longer able to sing at clubs or gain meaningful employment, Billy Holiday eventually relapsed. A few short years later, she collapsed in Manhattan. On her way to the hospital, Holiday told a close friend that she was convinced Anslinger's men would kill her in there. She was terrified. According to Dr. Paul Adams of the National Center for Biotechnology Information, Holiday was diagnosed with advanced liver cancer upon arrival to the hospital. To compound matters, she started to go through heroin withdrawal. To help ease the pain, she was put on methadone, and heartbreakingly, Ansinger's men cut it off. They fingerprinted her and questioned her for hours while she laid in her hospital bed without a lawyer present. It was humiliating and degrading. Sadly, Billie Holiday passed away in that hospital bed. Shortly before her death, she famously reflected, quote, A habit is hell for those who love you, and in this country, it's the worst kind of hell for those who love you. Holiday's struggle with addiction is well documented, and she was outspoken on the dangers of narcotics and addiction. Billie Holiday was an example for other entertainers, that their celebrity status would not save them from the consequences of their drug use. But there are accounts of other celebrity addicts meeting Anslinger under vastly different circumstances. In his book, Johan Hari claims that shortly after his encounter with Billie Holiday, Anslinger was informed that Wizard of Oz actor Judy Garland, then a young woman, was also addicted to narcotics. Rather than set her up in the same way that he'd set up Billie, Anslinger called Garland into his office for a chat, wherein he advised she take longer vacations between pictures and sent her away without so much as a slap on the wrist. Similarly, he refused to expose a wealthy Washington socialite for her heroin addiction, stating that it would destroy the unblemished reputation of one of the nation's most honored families. He even helped the woman recover from her addiction without involving the feds. The documentary, Big Pot, The Commercial Takeover, details the way the jazz community was singled out for their marijuana use while other entertainers were left alone. And it's pretty hard to deny the stark differences between his treatment of white and black drug addicts. Holiday's career was destroyed, while Judy Garland walked away scot-free. When you consider the way immigrants and the black community were singled out by Anslinger, first through the change in terminology from cannabis to marijuana, then to the relentless pursuit of jazz musicians, the idea that marijuana prohibition was exacerbated by racial anxiety holds a lot of water. I'm going to give this conspiracy theory a 9 out of 10. The evidence strongly supports this claim. As we discussed throughout this section, Anslinger could have had a number of motives for employing these tactics, but whatever the reason... The result was disproportionately damaging for immigrant and black communities and cemented harmful stereotypes. Anslinger gained notoriety and prominence for his campaign. But he wasn't the only one who stood to gain a great deal from marijuana prohibition. In fact, America's richest men could have been at risk of losing everything if hemp plant was cultivated on a mass scale. They were titans of business, and marijuana threatened to send their empires crumbling. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. 
Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And now, back to conspiracy theories. Outside of Harry Anslinger, there are three entities that some conspiracy theorists believe had a lot to gain from the prohibition of marijuana. Those entities were John D. Rockefeller... William Randolph Hearst, and the DuPont Company. Which brings us to theory number three. The FBN knew marijuana wasn't lethal, but banned it after lobbying by powerful men who wanted to take down their business competition. Weed is very cheap to grow, and, as we covered last episode, has the potential to help treat a myriad of health concerns and conditions with the proper research and controlled studies. Some people theorize that part of the reason pharmaceutical companies lobby against the legalization of marijuana is because it could help its users manage many conditions that would otherwise need to be treated with expensive prescription pills. Interestingly enough, in the wake of the recent legalization of medical marijuana in some states, like Colorado and California, many manufacturers of medical marijuana are looking to patent their weed products. As reported by Forbes, the U.S. government started granting weed patents over the past year. And it's understandable that manufacturers would want to patent their products. The cheap, easy-to-grow plant could deliver a serious blow to several manufacturers of expensive, complex drugs meant to aid in pain or anxiety relief. Beginning in the late 1800s, John D. Rockefeller began buying into the pharmaceutical industry. By 1900, He was considered the richest man in the world, sitting on a huge oil fortune and a growing pharmaceutical one. Now, the rest of this information is mostly conspiracy theory and not officially substantiated. The theory goes Rockefeller attempted to use his political influence to get laws enacted that would restrict marijuana consumption so that his pharmaceutical companies could have a monopoly on the healing market. According to this theory, Rockefeller worked to smear and ban opioids when the Chinese brought them over from China in the late 1800s. Some believe he had spies at an international opium convention in 1912 and began to angle for a way to infuse his pharmaceuticals into China and control the market the way he had been in the U.S. Then in the 1930s, he began to lobby against marijuana alongside Anslinger so that no natural alternative to his pharmaceuticals would exist. Of course, there's no official proof of this whatsoever. But unless a spy was found out, we can assume no proof would manifest itself. Additionally, ethanol can be extracted from hemp plant, and Rockefeller felt that this cheap source of ethanol fuel could threaten his oil empire drawing millions of dollars in diesel fuel away from his bank account. The idea of manipulating the pharmaceutical industry is far-fetched enough. Can usable fuel actually be extracted from hemp? After all, ethanol can also be extracted from corn, but all research shows that the amount of corn that would be needed to become a sustainable source of fuel is astronomical. Well, again, cannabis is a restricted substance, and as such... Few studies exist on its myriad of uses. That said, there is one recent study from the University of Connecticut that suggests one acre of hemp plant can produce 8,000 pounds of hemp seed. When cold-pressed, these hemp seeds can produce up to 300 gallons of diesel fuel. 
The scientists responsible for the study were recently granted $1.8 million from the Department of Energy to continue their work on this renewable energy source. That is unexpected and fascinating. In the 1930s, Rockefeller wouldn't have had those exact figures, but he would have understood that hemp ethanol was good for running car engines and generators. The financial impact of a new, competing energy source could have been on his radar. And whether he wanted the marijuana ban or not, it clearly worked in his favor. If these stories are true, then Rockefeller had a lot to gain from the prohibition of marijuana. But his was not the only company that benefited from taking cannabis out of the picture. Conspiracy theorists believe that another corporate behemoth, the DuPont Company, had a vested interest in cannabis prohibition. Led by director Charles M.A. Stein, the DuPont Company invented a variety of synthetic fibers in the 1930s to create rope and other goods. They hoped to replace hemp rope that was commonly used at the time. Their inventions included lycra, teflon, freon, and most important to our investigation, nylon. Nylon was one of the most widely used inventions of the 20th century. It was cheap and incredibly durable. In fact, the only fiber that was cheaper was, you guessed it, hemp plant. If hemp plant was made illegal, the DuPont company stood to gain a fortune. Additionally, there may have been a connection between the DuPont company and Harry Anslinger. Anslinger was appointed commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics by his uncle-in-law, Andrew Mellon. Mellon was a wealthy Philadelphia banker and rumored to be a major financial backer in the DuPont company. He allegedly lent the company the funds it needed to acquire General Motors in the 1920s. So Anslinger could have supported hemp prohibition in an act of nepotism. Possibly. Historians struggle to find evidence of a DuPont-Mellon connection. As far as we can tell, that acquisition was on the level, bought with company money. The last titan of industry we have to discuss is William Randolph Hearst. Hearst was an almost self-made businessman with a booming media empire. So it seems absurd that he would have much to do with hemp legislation outside of reporting on it. But in actuality, Hearst's empire was in need of a bailout. The stock market crash of 1929 took a huge toll on Hearst's media enterprise. Newspapers are not a self-sustaining business. And when people have to choose between food and the news, well, they typically choose to feed their families. Over the course of the 1930s, Hearst's reach was consolidated. By 1937, Hearst had to shut down several of his extraneous enterprises, like a film company and several smaller publications. The corporation faced a court-ordered reorganization, and Hearst was forced to sell much of his legendary art collection to pay creditors. So he was looking for a way to rebuild his empire. Possibly. It's worth noting that during this time, his paper's headlines became noticeably more aggressive and vitriolic. He made two mistakes that really left him scrambling. He flew to Berlin in 1934 to interview Adolf Hitler. This somewhat legitimized Hitler's leadership in Germany and angered the majority of Hearst readers. Then, he turned against FDR in 1935, and by proxy, the majority of his working-class supporters who bought many of Hearst's papers. His paper sales were at an all-time low. So when Harry Anslinger came along with a new narcotic to vilify, Hearst saw an opportunity to sell more papers? Officially, he was doing his part in reporting the news and spreading the word about this dangerous drug, marijuana. He ran papers with headlines like, Marijuana makes fiends of boys in 30 days, and hashish goads users to bloodlust. But unofficially, we found a few theories. Let's start by remembering that Hearst was accustomed to a lifestyle that cost a lot of money. Selling a mess of papers about the dangers of marijuana would certainly have helped, but there's more money to follow here. Marijuana activist Jack Herrer claims that in the 1930s, quote, when the new mechanical hemp fiber stripping machines to conserve hemp's high cellulose pulp finally became state-of-the-art, available and affordable, Hearst stood to lose millions. 
Hearst allegedly owned enormous holdings of timber acreage and was deeply invested in paper manufacturing, essentially the wood pulp business. But a machine that could make hemp pulp into paper stood to ruin all of that. Hearst had to bury the hemp plant and all of its byproducts to maintain his standard of living. Or so goes the theory. But in W.A. Swanberg's biography, Citizen Hearst, we find a conflicting story, one which is publicly documented. Swanberg reports that Hearst was actually the nation's largest purchaser of newsprint. In the late 1930s, when prices rose from $40 a ton to over $50 a ton, Hearst fell deeply into debt and never recovered the beginning of the end for his beloved art collection and castle on the Enchanted Hill. So Hearst actually would have welcomed a cheaper paper substitute like hemp had the alternative been available. There's not a lot of evidence that Hearst was invested in the manufacturing of paper whatsoever. So neither the DuPont Company nor the Hearst theories seem to hold water. The Rockefellers definitely have the most motive, and their conspiracy theory is the most plausible. But all things considered, I'm going to give this one a 2 out of 10. There is merit to the idea that John D. Rockefeller would want to block alternative forms of energy and possibly even competing pharmaceuticals, but there is just little proof to back up that claim. I think that in this case, the most obvious answers are probably the correct ones. It makes sense that Anslinger was looking for a way to protect the FBN's position and could have seen cannabis as a vehicle to secure his legacy, more so than an actual threat to the public. And whether calculated or not, Anslinger's racist remarks and xenophobic tactics had a huge effect on the public's perception of marijuana and its users. It's probably a combination of theories one and two. The prohibition of marijuana was a complex issue that spanned from 1930 to 1937 before the Marijuana Tax Act was passed, and the debate has continued ever since. This episode of Conspiracy Theories has been almost a hundred years in the making. Even today, the criminalization of marijuana continues to be a hotly debated topic, and everyone has an opinion. Some states have maintained a hard line on weed, while others have begun to repeal marijuana prohibition. The national conversation on marijuana is continually changing, and we've only scratched the surface on the number of conspiracy theories surrounding this famous plant. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Let us know what your favorite theory is and join us next week as we explore another conspiracy theory. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler. He is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Aaron Lan and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.